Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series for primary care brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. My name is Charlie Andrews and I'm a GP in Somerset and I'm also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology at the Royal United Hospital in Bath. During this podcast series, I talk to experts in various fields of gastroenterology to bring you up-to-date, reliable and useful advice that will help you on the front line helping to manage patients with gastrointestinal conditions. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Mike Burkett about dyspepsia. Dyspepsia is an extremely common condition affecting around 20% of the population at any one time. And we see a lot of it in primary care. So it's so important that we have a good, thorough way of assessing patients with dyspepsia, identifying those who need urgent referral, and knowing how we can manage patients longer term with this often quite troubling symptom. Mike Burkett is clinical lead for gastroenterology and hepatology in Greater Manchester. His clinical interests include inflammatory bowel disease and gastric precancerous lesions. He sits on the BSG Gastroduodenal Committee and he's been funded by the National Institute for Health Research and the Wellcome Trust. So Mike, thank you so much for talking to me today. We are going to be talking about dyspepsia today. And I think before we get stuck into or dig our teeth into dyspepsia, I think it's always helpful to work out what we're actually talking about. So could you tell us a little bit about what dyspepsia actually is? Yeah, sure. I, I think dyspepsia is one of those words that um, we learn at medical school. Um, and I certainly remember at medical school being told it was quite a vague term and didn't necessarily fit in with any particular definition. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, so essentially, we're talking about people who get pain in their upper abdomen and discomfort in their upper abdomen. It's often associated with when they're eating. And it can be linked to other symptoms like nausea, um, sometimes vomiting. Um, and um, there's a very big crossover with people who have gastroesophageal reflux symptoms, which may be a little bit separate, but are um, in a similar vein. So with gastroesophageal reflux, you think more about people having a heartburn, um, and uh, possibly water brash type symptoms and regurgitation. Um, but certainly dyspepsia can cover a whole host of different uh, symptoms. And is it helpful to separate people with reflux from people with dyspepsia? I think it's very useful in the medium term to do that. Um, I think initially there are actually quite a lot of commonalities about how you manage them. But I think once you're um, in the stage of trying to observe how people are getting on with treatment and trying to work out what further investigations people might make, it can be really helpful to have separated those things. Because there are some quite different treatment options for reflux in particular. Um, so you might need to be thinking with some people with really intractable symptoms of the reflux about surgery and about other interventional treatments. And of course, there are different risk factors as well. So if you've got recurrent reflux, you've got an increased risk of Barrett's esophagus, so you've got an increased risk of um, esophageal cancers. It's less likely to be the case in someone who's just got dyspepsia without a reflux component. I was wondering, could you tell us some of the commoner underlying causes of dyspepsia? So um, we see a lot of people who have got 
um, inflammation in the stomach. So they may have um, inflammation related to medications. Um, so common medications that cause inflammation are aspirin, which is obviously used very frequently in older patients. Um, we also see it in people who have uh, been using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or indeed steroids if they had an indication for them. Um, but we also see uh, helicobacter-associated um, dyspepsia. I know that you're going to talk to, uh, about helicobacter on a future talk. And we also see people with true gastric acid reflux, so where people are getting acid coming up into the chest um, and it's not staying in the right place and they're just getting symptoms largely related to acid. Those are the main sort of causes that we are able to identify reasonably effectively. Um, but then there are also people who have things that probably better characterize as functional dyspepsia. And that's where we haven't really identified a cause particularly, but they're still getting those symptoms. And that, that's quite a common presentation. In terms of assessing patients, I'd like to just cover the red flags with you, if that's okay. So the alarm symptoms that we should be uh, looking out for in patients with dyspepsia. We're all very aware of two-week wait referral criteria, um, and we're very aware that people can present with dyspepsia and um, that this is the first presentation of their esophagastric cancers. So this is really important. The specific red flags that we think about are weight loss, which is always a concern. Um, people who are getting dysphagia, so food sticking as they swallow it. Um, and people who um, are developing symptoms at an older age are all risks that make us concerned about an, an esophagogastric cancer. And those people should be referred more rapidly on the two-week wait pathway, as NICE recommends and as I'm sure most local organisations have, have rapid access pathways for those people. And are there any other groups of patients who perhaps don't have alarm symptoms or red flags who you would be thinking would probably benefit from a more urgent appointment than say someone being seen routinely? There are people who are in a position where they're likely to, to have more significant underlying pathology. So if you've got someone who's got a family history of gastric cancer, particularly gastric cancers coming on at a young age, there are genetic predispositions for gastric cancer, but they're quite rare. If you've got someone who has got um, another risk factor that might mean they're more likely to have another pathology, like diabetes, where people with nausea and vomiting and upper GI symptoms are more likely to have things like gastroparesis, which actually is worthwhile diagnosing early so that you can intervene early. Or indeed, people who've got rarer things like connective tissue disorders, where there are some significant problems with people with mixed connective tissue disorders and scleroderma developing um, significant upper GI dysmotility and the upper GI pathology that really is well worth investigating early. Great, thank you. That's really helpful. I think it's really useful to go back through the red flags and just remind ourselves of uh, those sort of alarm symptoms we should look for. And it's really helpful there to just cover some of the groups of patients where we need to just be a little bit more alert to things that might be going on um, behind the scenes. So what we're gonna do next, Mike, is we're gonna look at a 
sort of a fairly typical patient coming in to see the GP and we're going to follow them through on their path if that's all right just because it gives us a bit more of a feel for what should we do as GPs when faced with this patient so um, the patient we're going to take is a 40 year old gentleman who's got no alarm symptoms no other significant past medical history of note and he's taking PRN Gaviscon for some intermittent dyspepsia and he's, he's decided now to come to see you um, as the GP, let's say, um, how would you approach that? So, I mean, I think you, you've told me a lot of the important information there already. You've told me that he is reasonably young, um, that he's got intermittent symptoms, that it's been going on quite a while, so it's not, not a new rapid change, um, and that he doesn't have the alarm symptoms to make us genuinely worried about him. And in that setting, I think it's important that we really try to um, contextualise that and try to, to, to set our sort of clinical anxiety at the right level. So this is a guy who's got a problem. That, yeah, he needs some investigation or some, some help with treatment and he may need investigation, but we need to be conscious of the fact that he's a generally fit and well person. So I think at this point, it's really important to look at his lifestyle. So you need to think about what's his weight? Um, is he overweight? Because we know that people who are overweight are much more likely to have dyspeptic symptoms. Does he drink alcohol? Does he smoke? Because we know that smoking is a risk factor for reflux. Fat smoking um, has been shown in physiological studies to relax the lower esophageal sphincter, which significantly increases the, the risk of reflux. And we need to... Um, think about whether there are modifications to his lifestyle that would be quite simple, like looking at his diet, looking at his, the times that he's eating, looking at the way that he's sleeping and whether he's got any other ways that he might be able to adjust this in his own lifestyle. And that's probably the first thing to do. Um, it's also the time to start thinking about screening him for some really simple stuff. So um, it's a good time to say, well, we're not treating you yet, so let's do a, a fecal test for helicobacter. See if you've got helicobacter there, because if you have, then that's a treatable cause that you might be able to change something. Assuming that that's not completely successful or you go through all of that and you don't find very much that you can, you can intervene with, I think it's very reasonable to try a proton pump inhibitor at that point. They're, they're much of a muchness in terms of efficacy, so I wouldn't particularly say that you should use one rather than the other um, and I would say it's always worth starting with a reasonable dose so I wouldn't start with a very small dose but probably in him I'd start with 20 milligrams of a meprazole for example and I'd give it to him for at least a month uh, and I'd want to review him at a month to see whether that treatment has helped him. And at this stage, is it helpful to do any other investigations, any blood tests, or do you feel at this stage, helicobacter pylori before he starts the PPI and, and then give him some, some treatment? So H. pylori before he starts the PPI is certainly um, what I would recommend. Uh, in terms of blood tests, I would be pretty keen at this stage to still minimise the medicalization of this patient. And so I think I would probably defer blood tests at this stage until I see him again. Because if we've sorted out the problem with a simple course of treatment um, or we've identified something like helicobacter that we can treat and eradicate, then actually I don't think we should be over-medicalising this 
patient. Okay. It's a bit different if when he comes back, he's still symptomatic. At that stage, I think it's helpful to start some basic blood tests like full blood count, renal function. Okay. The renal function is really in case he needs any investigations that we would want those available for us. Okay. And so let's say he comes back and says, um, actually, everything's a lot better. Uh, you know, that's really helped with my symptoms. I'm taking the tablet every day. What would you do at that point? Well, at that day point, I'd say that's really good news. I'd go back to my lifestyle thing, because if we've got things that we can keep working on, you know, a month is not very long to change someone's lifestyle. And we know that if we're trying to change behaviours, repeated interventions definitely make a difference. So I'd definitely go back to my lifestyle events and say, you know, how are we doing with these things? Um, and I'd talk about, well, now that you've been treated with this uh, acid suppression medication, it's quite possible that you'll cope without it in the future. Because if, for instance, what you've actually done with that medication is treat some low-grade esophagitis, that may well have healed now. And you may be able to wean down to a lower dose of um, DPI and maybe offer it to them as a, a on a PRN basis. I think I, I largely feel that if someone's needed a course of, of um, PPI for, for dyspepsia, it's best if we can then wean them off it as much as possible. But most people who've needed a prescribed course, it's probably worth allowing them access to it on a PRN basis to at least monitor their uh, and manage their symptoms as they go forward. And you mentioned there about weaning him off. Why do we need to do that? This is particularly relevant if someone's been on high-dose PPIs. But we know that when, when someone has their acid in the stomach suppressed, they get an increase in their gastrin as a, as a response because there's a negative feedback loop there. Um, and gastrin secreted by the um, antrum of the stomach acts as a growth factor on the parietal cells where the acid is produced in the gastric body. So... When you're on a PPI, your gastrin goes up a little bit. The number and size of the parietal cells that you have sitting in the gastric body increase. And that means that if you suddenly take the um, PPI away, you can get a huge release of acid, which is unsurprisingly often associated with symptoms in people. So to, do, to wean people off the, the PPI gradually allows that to, to prevent a big surge in acid production. Okay. Thanks for that. That's really helpful to have a bit of advice about how to manage PPIs because we're using them all the time in primary care. So a useful learning point really to, to remember about weaning people off. Now, if you were to come back at that month mark and say, yeah, that's just not doing it. I'm still getting this, this problem. Um, what are you going to do next, Doc? So at that point, I think it this patient merits an endoscopy. So, um, you know, different different bits of the healthcare system have different access to, to um, endoscopies and uh, prior to coronavirus in Manchester where I work um, you, the GPs would have been able to access uh, an open access gastroscopy. A little bit different at the moment because we do have a big problem with um, backlog of endoscopies still. We're working on it and have resolved a big chunk of that problem but it, it's still going to be with us for a good few months yet. So actually, our referral would probably come to our community gastroenterology service, which is commissioned, um, and they would be assessed clinically in that before being referred for a, a, 
uh, an endoscopy. But I think at this stage, really, endoscopy is reasonable because you want to exclude serious pathology where you're thinking about peptic ulceration. You also want to think about the long term a little bit as well. So you're thinking about Barrett's esophagus again, thinking about risk factors for other pathology going forward. So um, most of the things that we're thinking about there are probably hiatal hernia and Barrett's esophagus. A small proportion of people with dyspepsia might have pre-neoplastic pathology in the stomach as well, although that is rarer uh, and often happens in an older age group. Okay, so he goes forward for an, a, a gastroscopy and then the report comes back to the GP saying he's got esophagitis. What do we do at that point? What's the, the best thing to do to him? So, so in, in many respects, that's probably the best outcome from a gastroscopy because it's definitive which isn't always the case. And I, I do spend quite a lot of time telling patients that, um, that actually an endoscopy now is not the right thing to do, particularly people who um, have had an endoscopy before. So repeat endoscopy is one of my bugbears that we, we often see people who want another one and it didn't tell you the first time, it won't tell you again. Um, but if you found esophagitis, that really confirms that they have got acid reflux. They've got something coming back up into the esophagus that is causing corrosive damage to the esophageal mucosa. So really, that, that's clear that that person needs treating for reflux. And that is probably with long-term long acid suppression, use of alginates, and there are possibly roles for other medications like prokinetics in a select group of patients. And there are people who will have intractable problems with reflux or who can't tolerate those medications who will benefit from surgical therapy or other endoscopic mechanical therapies that are available. Um, but th those, are, those people are in the minority. Most people will respond well to simple first-line treatment with PPIs and alginates. Okay. And a common thing that we see coming back on the endoscopy is, um, is hiatus hernia. Um, do you have any advice about how we might manage people with hiatus hernias? who are getting symptoms, but perhaps there's nothing else seen on the endoscopy? So people with a hiatal hernia and uh, symptoms, I think it's very important to explore those sim symptoms carefully because if they're truly getting symptoms of acid reflux and the... Um, hiatal hernia is a likely cause for that those symptoms then it may well be worth exploring whether mechanical treatment for that hiatus hernia is indicated particularly in people who are fit uh, and of a reasonable age whereby surgery is a good option however most people with a hiatal hernia are not getting symptoms from it most people don't have intractable symptoms because of their hiatal hernia and in those cases really there isn't an indication for surgery. We call it a hiatus hernia if it's seen at endoscopy and if it's large, but actually small hiatal hernias really are, are probably physiological and it's only once they get larger that we should be thinking about intervening with them. Okay, and now this is the one that, that we all, you know, we get back and then it's very difficult. So we've sent them for their endoscopy for their terrible reflux symptoms and their stomach pains um, and the OGD, the gastroscopy comes back completely normal and it's back to the GP to manage. 
Um, what do we do then? Um, well, um, that is, a, 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 it can be a real challenge. And so for me, I think, again, it, it's not really very fair to send someone back to GP just to manage it. I think we have to give advice when we're, when we're doing that. So for me, I always uh, review their medication, look at what they've had. I quite often will give them a short term, normally up to six to eight weeks course of a higher dose PPI, because there are a group of people who respond to higher dose PPI, but it's not by any means all of them. Um, and I would suggest that for a very fixed period of time, rather than leaving that open-ended. Um, I then think it's really important that you think holistically about this, this patient, because what we know is that there is something that you could describe as non-ulcer dyspepsia, um, which is an upper GI um, functional condition. Um, so this is something where people are developing symptoms without objective evidence of mucosal pathology. And some of it could be down to the motility of the upper GI tract. Some of it is down to um, visceral sensitivity. So people feeling things more acutely than someone else would feel. Uh, and some of it is very difficult to define. There are some psychological interventions that people advocate uh, in terms of trying to encourage people to understand their symptoms and to live with their symptoms. And I think that that is important that you grasp that quite early. I think where you have excluded serious pathology, it's important to confidently and clearly explain that you've excluded the serious pathology. That doesn't mean that they're not getting symptoms. Their symptoms are real. Their symptoms need to be considered carefully and managed carefully. But unfortunately, um, it's unlikely that you'll ever be able to show them something and point to them and say that's the cause. Uh, and that, that's something that I think um, is true for a lot of gastroenterology, actually. We see a lot of people with symptoms that we need to embrace the fact that those symptoms are real, but we can't show the patient the exact cause of them in them. So it sounds a bit like IBS of the upper GI tract. I have been known to say that to people. Um, and I think it's, I think it can, that can be really helpful. It depends on the patient. Some patients embrace that as a useful piece of information. Other people find the, the, the term IBS unhelpful. And I'm sure most people listening to the podcast will be aware that for some people, a diagnosis of IBS is a really helpful thing. It allows them to compartmentalize the issue. And for other people, the diagnosis is actually really unhelpful and it, it can drive a medicalized approach to things. And, you know, un unfortunately that's a very, very patient specific uh, situation. When would you consider other tests such as pH testing of the esophagus? And um, um, can you just so, tell us what that actually is? Absolutely. So, so there, there are a couple of different ways of testing pH in the esophagus. And the reason to do it is to prove that somebody has got gastroesophageal reflux. So we said a, a moment ago that if you, if you do an endoscopy and you see esophagitis, that's very good evidence that there's definitely something being refluxed. A, a typical symptom constellation is good evidence that someone's having reflux. But if you are thinking about intervening with surgery in particular, you need evidence. You, you can't go ahead with that without really objective evidence that someone has got 
has got genuinely got reflux. And the two ways of doing it, you can either use a, uh, a, a, a pH probe that you pass through the nose, uh, down into the esophagus, and it sits in the esophagus, and it measures two things. Normally, well, many of them will measure two things, both pH, measuring for acid, and the other really potentially useful thing is that it can measure impedance, which is essentially the resistance in that area. Uh, and what that, that will measure is fluid that may not be acid, but may just be neutral fluid that is refluxing into the esophagus. The reason that those are such useful tests is that it will tell you for certain if the person is getting acid or fluid into the esophagus that shouldn't be there. And you can then correlate that to their symptoms by keeping a symptom diary and understanding what's going on. And it's that correlation between symptoms and physiology that helps you to decide whether structural treatment for reflux and whether that's surgery or endoscopic treatments are actually likely to offer a benefit. There is another way of doing acid uh, uh, measurements, which is using something called the Bravo capsule, which is a little device that you can attach with an endoscope to the esophagus and it will sit in the esophagus and it measures the pH for 48 hours, gives slightly longer readings and then is passed um, naturally. The benefit of the Bravo capsule is that your patient can genuinely have a normal day. They don't have to have a tube coming out of their nose. Um, and so they can walk around, they can go to work, they can do what they normally do and reflect on their symptoms as they do that. Because one of the really important things with any physiological testing is that you want it to reflect what's going on in real life as much as you possibly can. And that's one of the strengths of the Bravo capsule. Just to recap, that, that sort of testing might be considered for people who've got no endoscopic evidence, but just very, very troublesome so, symptoms. It, it would be for people with the symptoms at the more severe end of the scale, anyone who you're thinking about surgery for, essentially. Um, and, and certainly locally to me, the way that normally works is we see people who are referred by GPs who normally have already been assessed with a gastroscopy in the community system, but who are struggling with their symptoms, can't manage their, their treatment for whatever reason. And then they normally see me as a gastroenterologist. I'll organise the physiological testing and we'll talk them through any other elements of treatment that I think might be helpful. And then I would refer on to one of my colleagues as surgeon if, if they, their physiology and presentation looks like it's a, an appropriate option for them. And what sort of options are there available surgically? So surgically, most, most uh, commonly the operation that people would have is a laparoscopic uh, fundification where they wrap the top part of the, uh, the uh, stomach around the entrance of the esophagus to just tighten up that area. Um, it's a laparoscopic operation for most people. Um, there, there are other um, devices that are available, but they're not commonly available on the NHS at the moment. Just, just going back one step, if that's all right. I was looking at the functional dyspepsia guidelines on NICE, and um, I know that in the past we've we've used prokinetics to help pe people who've got troubling symptoms, um, but it doesn't seem that they are being recommended anymore. Would you use prokinetics in people who've got these sort of symptoms? Is that is that a treatment option that that seems to be beneficial? So um, that is 
an area of some debate, actually. So I do use prokinetics, but I'm not sure that I would recommend that they're used in primary care. Um, I, I tend to use them in people who have had insufficient response to PPIs. Um, the reason that I wouldn't recommend them um, globally is really not due to their effect on um, reflux, which is modest, but, but probably genuine. Um, but there is um, quite a lot of concern about the, the side effects of prokinetics, whether it's domperidone and its cardiac side effects or metoclopramide and the risk of tardive dyskinesia, um, or indeed the use of antibiotics as prokinetics, which has an issue with um, antibiotic stewardship. Um, all of them have issues. Uh, and so I do use prokinetics, but I think that it's probably something that is probably best reserved for secondary care and in selected patients. I certainly don't use them in everybody. Great. Okay, well, thanks so much, Mike, for, for that. That's really helpful to talk through how we'd approach a patient. So just to finish off, I wondered if you had any top tips for GPs. So I think my top tips for GPs would really be about the assessment of patients and the risk stratification of people. You know, we all live in a society where we worry about cancer a lot of the time. We know about the red flags. They're really important. We should definitely be using the correct two-week wait pathways for people who have those red flag symptoms. But I think we should be aware that dyspepsia is also an incredibly common presentation. And so we can't send everybody who has dyspepsia down a two-week wait pathway. It's very important that we step people through testing and treating for um, H. pylori and acid suppression in the first place where it's appropriate to see if they respond to those treatments early on. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mike. That's been really interesting and really helpful for me. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. Uh, I think it's been really interesting just to run through what we should be doing, what tests we should be doing, who we should refer and how urgently we should be referring them to the hospital and for investigations. Always really helpful to cover. Uh, and I think Mike gave a really thorough overview there. So that was great. There will be some other episodes on the topic of dyspepsia. Um, so please do tune in for them. Uh, and we'll be moving on to another condition. So we'll be thinking about chronic diarrhea in a couple of later episodes. So stick with us and I hope that you're getting a lot from these episodes. Thanks very much. Bye bye.